0: if you are if you are new to mosaic welcome my name my name's malcolm i'm one of the I'm one of the pastors here today's liturgy is like a, is just a great example of what we want an intentionally multicultural church to be Gospel music, a little luther some 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 Book of common prayer, a sermon on economic exploitation it's it's <laughs> it's a big win um, so I want to start uh, I want to start our sermon with uh, actually uh, a TikTok. So, um, if, 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 we can, if we can play the video briefly, I want you to think about this over the course of the sermon. 85 richest people is equal to the three and a half billion poorest people. It's fantastic. And this is a great thing because it inspires everybody, gets the motivation to look up to the 1% and say, I want to become one of those people. I'm going to fight hard to get up to the top. This is fantastic news. And of course, I applaud it. What can be wrong with this? Really? Yes, really. So somebody living on I celebrate a capitalism. dollar a day in Africa is, is getting up in the morning and saying, I'm going to be Bill Gates. That's the motivation only everybody needs. i only thing between needs. me and I'm that guy is motivation. I just need to pull up my socks. I am oh, not, wait, don't, I don't have socks. Look, don't. I just, I just want us to think about that over the course of the sermon today. I'm going to give a little context to it. But I want y'all to—I want y'all to bear—I want y'all to bear with me this morning because I think to understand this particular text, Isaiah twenty-three, we're going to need to think big picture. So, so the last, uh, my, so my, so my, my, last two opportunities I had to, uh, I had to preach with y'all was was on Babylon and Egypt, and they're not just, and, and, and that wasn't just about those nations; it was also about the logics behind those nations. So for Babylon, we were thinking about domination and empire. And for Egypt, we were thinking about oppression and hate and loving our enemies. For Tyre, we have to look at another logic and another idol, greed and pride in profit. So this week, as we continue our march through the book of Isaiah, we're looking at Isaiah 23, a prophecy against a city called Tyre. And as with any of these oracles, we first have to understand them in their context before we mercilessly apply them to our current global economy. So, but, but, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. Let's take a look at the text. Verse 1. Wail, you ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is, de- is destroyed and left without house or harbor. From the land of Cyprus, word has come to them. So what's so special about the ships of Tarshish? We see them throughout this chapter and actually throughout the scriptures. So it's going to be helpful for us to know what they are. And it's very simple. The the ships of Tarshish are conduits of international commerce. So they're symbols of free trade and wealth. We're told in the scriptures that these, the greatest ships available for this kind of work, they travel with gold and silver and ivory, apes and peacocks, iron, tin, lead, and other goods. The ships of Tarshish are like Amazon planes and trucks, bearing everything that you need, not only for your life, but also for your luxury. The ships of Tarshish are the drivers of ancient national wealth. Tyre is, is a city at the center of a region that's called Phoenicia. And Phoenicia is the center of international commerce in the ancient world. One could say that it's a concrete jungle where dreams are made of. The ships of Tarshish, Tyre, and Phoenicia call us to talk to, to think about one thing: global commerce. But how does the scripture call us to think about this ancient system of global commerce? Let's take a look at verses two and three. Be silent, you people of the island, and you merchants of Sidon. Sidon is Tyre's sister city, whom the seafarers have enriched. On the great waters came the grain of the Shehor. The harvest of the Nile was the revenue of Tyre, and she became the marketplace of the nations. These are words about longevity. The marketplace of the nations? That sounds awesome. That sounds like, sounds like something that'll last, something that's worth celebrating. And yet they are told, be silent, as though they talk a lot. Uh-oh. The judgment begins in verse 4. Be ashamed, Sidon, and you fortress of the sea, for the sea has spoken. I have neither been in labor nor given birth. I have neither reared sons nor brought up daughters. When word comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish at the report from Tyre. Cross over to Tarshish. Wail, you people of the island. Is this your city of revelry? The old, old city whose feet have taken her to settle in far off lands? Who planned this against Tyre? The bestower of crowns, whose whose merchants are princes, whose traders are renowned in the earth. The Lord Almighty planned it. To bring down her pride in all her splendor and to humble all who are renowned on the earth. Wealth makes this city think that it will last forever. God, however, sets himself against it for its destruction. In verse 7, the city is referred to as a city of revelry, a city of of partying, whose whose feet have taken her to settle in far-off lands. Here you can hear some of the echoes of, of settler colonialism, the exploration of foreign lands to settle in them to exploit their resources for material gain. I'm not making this up. This is just what the text says. The merchants of this city are princes. See, this is a society where the rich rule where the rich are admired, where the rich are supported because God put them in that position, where the rich are celebrated. And yet the Lord stands in judgment over them. Verses 10 to 13 tell us that that the Lord will take away their harbor, that is the source of their wealth on the sea. He orders that their fortresses be destroyed, that the partying stops. And he promises to use Babylon as a tool to crush this blossoming and constantly growing economy. And the ripples of this crushing would, would, would resound even as far as Egypt. He bids the ships of wealth to wail, for they will be forgotten for 70 years. You see, brothers and sisters, this is a thoroughgoing, complete and total judgment of a global economic system. The people of God are encouraged to be, to be wary of these systems because they're often vast manifestations of pride, of oppression, and exploitation. Where the rich continually get rich off of, off of land and off of their neighbors. They get rich off of a resource that's, that's meant for communal sharing. And they get rich off of the exploiting of people where people are not meant to be exploited. They're meant to be loved. And it's precisely because of this fact that God sets God's self against them in judgment. Brothers and sisters, this is not scripturally controversial. In Luke 6, 24 and 25, Jesus says, this is Jesus, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. In Mark 10, 25, we're told by Jesus that, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, which means exactly what it says. I think, so in order to run from this text, some folks have made up a story about the eye of a needle being an ancient gate that a camel just has to get on its knees to go through. You know, it's just about humility. about humility. It's garbage. It's a dodge to avoid the obvious application of this text. We have two options when we, when we hear this text. Either Jesus is saying it's really hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, or it's impossible. And when you read on, Jesus says, with humans, it is impossible. But only with God is it possible. In James 1:10 to 11, we've been going through James in our small groups. In James 1, 10 to 11, James says, the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. We are told throughout the scriptures that riches are a significant temptation for the people of God. And they are fleeting, The rich fade away. Tyre, Sidon, these economic centers of the ancient world would face the wrath of God for their pride because pride and riches lead ultimately to destruction. But that was then. What about now? Do we have anything to do with Tyre and Sidon? Well, it's interesting because I read this text and I thought uh, thought about another very, very rich city. A city that houses a harbor that is one of the largest natural harbors in the world. It's an extremely populous city. It's an extremely rich city that houses about 350,000 millionaires. 15,000 multi-millionaires. This is like assets between 10 and 100 million. 700 centimillionaires. That is folks over, over, who have assets of over $100 million. And 59 billionaires all in one city. It's a city that functions as the financial center not only of its country, but in some estimations, is the financial center of the entire world. It's another city that bestows crowns, where merchants are princes, where their traders are, are, are renowned in the earth. But their trade is not in gold or grain. Well, not directly, anyway. When you look behind the stocks and derivatives, sometimes gold and grain are actually behind them. It also happens to be housed in a state that calls itself the Empire State. (laughs) Like, that's really on the nose. (laughs) New York City, in the eyes of some, is the greatest city in the world. In the eyes of others, it could be seen as a glittering example of the excesses of corporate greed. But this isn't just about a particular city. This is about a world economy. And if the Lord's wrath was poised against Tyre and Sidon for partying and taking pride in their wealth, where does that leave us? Do you know why this country is so rich, dripping with wealth? Do you know what set the U.S.'s trajectory to become literally the most significant economy in the world? Do you know what created our empire? Was it, was it our, our wonderful national values? Was it the Lord's favor on, our, on, on, his, on his beloved nation? No. It was cotton. Cotton. Cotton was in the 19th century what, what, what oil was in the, in the 20th, the most valuable thing in the world. It Kicks off the Industrial Revolution. In the 19th century, so, we, so the title of the sermon is a Wu-Tang song. Cash rules everything around me. If this were written back in the 19th century, it would be cotton rules everything around me. But most importantly, that's what made the U.S. fabulously wealthy. Do you know, you know when normal people's houses started being built with closets? Like closets that, go off of that are off of the bedroom? It's in this period. Because, because slave labor gets you all this cotton, which then people make into clothes, and people aren't used to having so many clothes. And so once that, once that production picks up, then houses start getting built with closets. We can't forget where this wealth comes from the merciless exploitation of slave labor. One historian, Gerald Horne, summarizes it succinctly. In the the language of idolatry, as the filthy wealth generated by slavery and dispossession accelerated, capitalism and profit became the new god with its curia in the basilicas of Wall Street. That's the foundation of our current global capitalism, the exploitation of the poor. And it keeps happening around the world. It's the reason for global poverty. Many nations are crippled by poverty, not because it's somehow their fault, but because they've been crippled by debt from imperialist nations like our own, and they're continuing to be sucked to dry. You see, brothers and sisters, Tyre and Sidon are not foreign cities or ideas. We see them in our very midst. Brothers and sisters, the wealth that surrounds us, the inequality that surrounds us, even in Waco, is the fruit of a global economic system that does not care about us, but only about profit. It's a global economic system that preaches another gospel. It's a system and a culture that tells you that you are what you do and that your only worth is your worth to the market. It's a system and a culture that tells us that what matters is that the economy is strong or that the market is growing, even when that means that the poor are growing in number and dying in droves, and even when that means that we are being forced apart from one another. It's a system and a culture that tells you that competition, consumerism, and the accumulation of wealth are what's best for you and what's best for your families. I want us to see and know one thing, brothers and sisters, I mean a few things, but especially this thing, that's affirmed in the Accra confession. It's a confession that the the World Council of Reformed Churches got together in Ghana to write about economic justice, and it says this, the current world order is rooted in an an extremely complex and immoral economic system defended by empire. What do we mean by empire? We mean there are powerful nations that have built a massive system to protect, defend, and enrich themselves. And we're one of those nations. But as I said before, I mean, there are probably very few millionaires in this congregation. So why should we care? What does this have to do with us? This text ought to sober us and open our eyes to the world that we live in. You see, this system and culture also feeds us particular assumptions about the rich and the poor. You saw it in the, you saw it in the TikTok. You got 80, The 85 richest people in the world have as much wealth as the, 3.5 billion people together. We assume that the rich are rich because they work harder because they're smarter, because they're just generally better at life. And the poor are poor because it's their fault. People on government assistance are freeloaders living off the system, so we're told. There has been no era in recent history that has driven these particular assumptions as hard as ours. If you, if you were poor in the past, people would, people would blame exploitation. They'd, blame, they, they'd say, well, you've been abandoned by your community. They would sometimes blame God. God's the one who puts you in that position. But we're in a fiercely individualistic culture right now that deceptively tells you, if you make it, you did it on your own. And if you fail, it's your fault. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if you know this, but many folks are rich not because of their work, but because of their inheritance. Others are rich not because of their work, but because of return on capital. Others are rich because of gambling. Some are rich because of the merciless exploitation of workers and land. As for the poor, it doesn't take very much for someone to experience homelessness. Some of you all under the sound of my voice, if you lost your job, could be on the street in a number of months. We don't like to think about our lives as precarious, so we stack up our storehouses. And we seek mammon and profit for comfort. But the scriptures remind us that we rely on the Lord for everything. Ultimate faith in anything else is going to lead to your fall. Mammon and riches are not worth you seeking because pursuing them leads to the judgment of God. That's not me. That's the scriptures. Now, this is not saying that money is useless. We know that's not true. We need it to survive. But you know when money turns for you from a tool into an idol there are two ways it does that. It happens when you don't think about money at all and when you think about it all the time. Because when you don't think about it at all, in a world economy as morally compromising as ours, that means that your resources could not only be corrupting you, but they could also be needlessly corrupting your neighbor. Not thinking about it at all often leads to waste. And waste or hoarding of our resources, according to a number of the early church fathers, is theft from your needy neighbor. But thinking about it all the time is also idolatry. Like Money's serious, but it's not that serious. Money is one of the things that we use to bless and to love our neighbors. It's a tool, not an idol. For example, if you have needs and you're you're a covenanted member of this particular body, you have a people whom the Holy Spirit has bound to you to meet those needs. So ask. But I'll get to that application in a bit. Because I want to take a look at the end of this passage before you think that it's just entirely about judgment of the greedy. I mean, it is about that, and our nation is a prime example of literally everything that's described in this passage. But that's not where it ends. Let's take a look at verses 15 to 18, which are kind of weird, but also great. At that time, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years, the span of a king's life. But at the end of these 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the prostitute. Take up a harp. Walk through the city, you forgotten prostitute. Play the harp well. Sing many a song so that you will be remembered. At the end of 70 years, the Lord will deal with Tyre. She will return to her lucrative prostitution and will ply her trade with all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. Yet her profit and her earnings will be set apart for the Lord. They will not be stored up or hoarded. Her profits will go to those who live before the Lord for abundant food and fine clothes. Now that may not have sunk in, but those are, but those are, those are shouting words. Tyre's judgment hits first, not just, not just in its economic humbling, but in being forgotten. See, one of the, one of the advantages of wealth is fame and conspicuous consumption. I mean, what good is my money, really, if I can't get a Bugatti and a a helicopter that you can all see? So example, last Tuesday, I was coming back from South Carolina, uh, speaking at a a university in uh, in South Carolina, and and upgrading one one leg of this flight to first class cost 200 bucks. I was like, that's probably the cheapest it's going to be ever. I'm going to do it. Because of course, yes. But why? Like, what are you paying for when you, when, you, when, you, when you fly first class? Sure, there's the hot towel that they give you, an actual meal, whatever you want to drink, the flight attendant refers to you by name. But there are two things that really can't be quantified. One is that when the plane takes off, they, like, they close the curtain, <laughs> separates you just to remind you that you're special, and since you're the first one to get on the plane, everybody's gotta walk by you and see you in your wide seat. <laughs> Plenty of legroom. See what you're what you're paying for, this is and this is and this is one of the, this is, this is, this, this, this is what is so what's so what's so attractive and corrupting about wealth, is that, is that, is that it tells you that you're better than people who don't have. If we think about it, In our national context, or even just in that context, it's very easy to tell yourself that you're the pimp when you're really the prostitute. There's a lot of sin, exploitation, and violence in this country's history. All those who commit it, are are, are complicit in it, or who enable it, will be held accountable. Enslavers will be held accountable. Investors who through their movement of capital impoverished nations will be held accountable. Government officials who orchestrated regime change in Africa and Latin America will be held accountable. Middle managers who facilitate the overwork and exploitation of workers will be held accountable. The pursuit of wealth doesn't really put you in control. It enslaves you to mammon. You think you're running things, but you're actually like Tyre. Actually just in lucrative prostitution, plying your trade with all the kingdoms of the world. That's dark, right? But the Lord's response is gold. No pun intended. Verse 18. Yet her profit and her earnings will be set apart for the Lord. They will not be stored up or hoarded. Her profits will go to those who live before the Lord for abundant food and fine clothes. You see, what we're being told is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of redistribution. God's economy is different from the world's economy. Grace has no part in the world's economy. If you mess up, the market is merciless. And yet God's response to our sin was not our immediate destruction. And praise the Lord that that, that's the case. Because he loved us, because he loved us, he sends his son to live, to preach, to heal, to die, and to be raised. And as the Israelites plundered the Egyptians when they were liberated from bondage, Jesus plundered hell and its minions, plucking us from from their fingers. We who deserve wrath can be forgiven. Our idols can be done away with. You see, the Lord didn't cast us away because we were unproductive, the constant fear that I think a lot of us live with. No, he brought us close to fill us with his spirit, and we're told in Ephesians that he remakes us in Christ Jesus to do good works which he has already prepared for us to walk in. That's who we are. Not, not cogs in a global capitalist machine, but, but bearers of the image of God, ambassadors of a personal communal and cosmic gospel, men and women who are called to live in mystical union with the Son of God. It is much more joyful to live a life where you know that Christ, rather than cash, rules everything around you. So how might, how might this look? I want us to think about two, two, two applications. First, this is the first Sunday in Lent. In 46 days, it will be Easter. This is the season in the church's calendar where we prepare to celebrate the most important day in human history. And traditionally, the church has done so with three particular activities. Fasting, prayer, and almsgiving, which is, which is the sharing of your goods with the needy. And the latter two, we should, we should be doing all the time. They naturally flow from the gospel. We need the Lord daily, so we ought to be praying unceasingly. Sharing with the needy is, is, the, is at the very center of the Christian ethic. But I would encourage you throughout this time to also fast and use those resources that you would use on yourself on someone else. And use that time to pray for both the poor and for your enemies. It's often the case that some folks choose to give up something for Lent and then, just like, and then just spend that time waiting to pick it back up again after Lent. I think I may have done that with Twitter last year. Um, but like it just becomes, like you're just constantly thinking, oh, it's just a few more days until I get to pick Twitter back up. But this is an opportunity for us to break habits through repentance and to replace them with new, healthy ones. Because we're the kind, we're the kind of people who are shaped by our regular habits. Best to have habits that, that bind us to the Lord and one another rather than separate us. And this leads me to the second, second application. I mentioned before that the gospel is redistributive, that what, others, that what others meant for evil, God uses for good. And that's not just true of the prophet from Tyre. The body of Christ is a redistributive body. Those who have more than enough are called to share with those who don't have enough. So I challenge you, To find another member of this church. If you're in a small group, you can pick somebody in your small group. If you're a married couple or family, I try to pair up with a single person. And commit to check in on them every day for the next 40 days. Why would I say this? I think our relationships are often too too shallow to be powerful. I think we all say that we want community, but we're often unwilling to express the vulnerability necessary to actually get close to somebody. So start small. Start with one or two other people. And regularly check in, regularly pray for each other, regularly communicate any needs that you have. Babysitting, finances, a ride, whatever. And seek to do as much as you can to meet the needs of that brother or sister. That's what love is. And if you can't do it, then ask your small group. If if your small group can't do it, come to the church. You've got multiple layers of support. And I want you to know that your brothers and sisters have promised to do the same for you. And when you actually do this stuff, there's going to be a lot of repenting along the way. But also, you'll get a tangible taste of what the divine economy looks like. You'll get a taste of what it means to live in light of the marvelous work that God has wrought on our behalf, where Christ has already done the big stuff. He died. The victory was won for you on the cross. Sin, death, and the devil have lost. So we can say to one another what the Lord says to us in Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. This Lenten season... Let's become a sharing community of bounty that Waco will then see and proclaim surely something different has descended upon this city. And may we respond by saying, repent and believe, and you can get in on this too. Let's pray.